Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook. This is Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, a columnist with the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. And we have here a special guest, um, Richard Deuarte. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Billy. It's good to be here. I used to be a journalist in Arizona, uh, but now I'm pretty much a retired uh, person. <laughs> We're glad you're uh, here to talk with us. So Richard has been involved in Arizona politics for decades, worked as a journalist in various capacities, uh, first as a reporter with the Phoenix Gazette, um, and then also with Arizona Republic. And we're an editorial writer for the Gazette as Precisely, well. Precisely, yes. And, uh, and then I worked uh, as a uh, uh, reader advocate for the, for the Republic and went back editorial writing for the, for the Republic. Actually, I came here in 79, and one of the first uh, races I covered was John McCain's first race in Arizona. And was his first uh, one as a con in the in the it, house, it was, or was he, it? he ran for the house and as a as a uh, carpetbagger, <laughs> and uh, he had a really a good line uh, when they brought that up to him. He says, "Well, actually, uh, as the, the only place I ever lived for a long, long time was in Hanoi, and that as was, a prisoner that, of war." Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Um, and then you were at uh, Maricopa County. Uh, as a public information officer? Uh, unfortunately, I was more a wartime correspondent <laughs> at the time. <laughs> During that time? <laughs> During that time. It was, uh, I had all these great ideas of bringing the uh, county into to more social use, more greater social media, have that outreach. As a public information you're, officer, you're really more of a traffic cop trying to uh, gear, gear reporters and the media to s stories that might be uh, uh, interesting for readers and that kind of stuff. But when you're in a real political battle, which the county supervisor, the sheriff, and the county attorney were for that top period of time, uh, it, 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 you, you throw out all, all your ideas. Well, I was, uh, as I was doing some research for this, I saw a award for you from the Phoenix New Times, and they, it was an award for best public information officer, and they said, even though we're not a big fan of writers <laughs> over the Arizona Republic or editorial, uh, we do appreciate it, or we, we did appreciate Richard um, as not only being willing to give information, but also um, kind of offering it when, when he thought it was, was needed. So you had I, a shout out there from yeah, the New Times. Yeah, and, and I, you, try to be, you try to be honest and 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 you try to advocate for the the agency uh, to the media, and you try to uh, defend or or explain where the media is going or why they're interested in that to the officials. Because basically, you know, it, it both sides feel that they are as pure as the driven snow, and the other side is pretty much has to be watched. <laughs> um, and then knowing a lot about journalism on, on both sides from the, as a reporter and also uh, representing the government, he has taught uh, ethics and journalism at uh, Arizona State, the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. That was, a, that was always a fun uh, experience. I did that for five semesters. It's a, it's a one-semester course. I used to tell them that uh, I was... I, I tried to uh, stamp out any signs of ethics wherever it would rear its ugly head. But uh, I, um, 
I, 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 teaching was fun, as as you can you can understand, and uh, and I had several good good students. Uh, uh, Vaughn Hilliard now is a an MSNBC report political reporter, national political reporter, and uh, and several are doing jobs in uh, in uh, sports writing across the country. So so it's it's kind of fun. Well, my first question is going to be the first topic I want to talk about relates to ethics and journalism in a way. And I just want to talk about the state of journalism in America right now. And I just don't know, like, how do you cover President Trump? He's so abnormal. There's so much going on uh, outside of the norm. State of the Union just happened a couple days ago. And my dad wrote um, a couple uh, on Wednesday uh, about distinguishing between Trump the person and, and Trump's agenda. For me, that's really hard to do. You got the, the tweets, uh, kind of the misdirections or lies, scandals seemingly coming out of every direction and, and leaking to the media. Got the Russia thing con- continuing to go on. He calls everything fake news. So, Professor uh, De Uarte, what, what advice would you give? or How do you approach that kind of work? Uh, what do you, from what you've read, what do you find helpful or not helpful about how Trump's being covered right now? Well, first, I, I agreed with uh, Bob's, your, your dad's uh, columns uh, on Trump, the, the personality. I, of course, I don't, I'm like you, I don't agree with all these uh, policies about uh, uh, opening up uh, the Grand Canyon to uranium and, uh, and putting oil, oil <laughs> wells on, on uh, Mission Beach. But uh, by the same token, for his... Uh, conservative ideological um, uh, demeanor. He he has pushed that that uh, th- those values, and especially his his uh, cabinet has done it. Um, the the I don't happen to agree with it, but I do understand that he uh, or I feel that he's been pretty successful in, yeah, in doing it. Yeah, mostly distinguishing in terms of success. Um, as a politician, he's in serious trouble, hot water, and not doing so hot. But his policy agenda, irrespective of whether you agree with it or not agree with it, um, has been successfully implemented. If you go through the things he said he would do on the campaign trail, uh, he's checked off a lot of them. And unlike a lot of politicians, he hasn't flinched uh, when they ran into opposition. And maybe this is, maybe this brings up how journalism is playing his role because when I, when I read you, Dad, or, or when I you know, hear you talk right now, you think, okay, it's, it's normal, but it just feels like total chaos, and it feels like we're at the brink of a constitutional crisis. Well, that's I the mean, failure that- of, of Trump the politician, um, but we still need to get back to the question you originally asked, Richard, which is, okay, you're the media, and the guy is attacking you on a daily basis. He's describing you as uh, unpatriotic, uh, treating you as an oppositional force. Your job is to cover the guy. How do you how do you cope with that? Well, and I I, th- I think it's it's difficult because, but it's. It's the task, it's the essential task of, of journalists is to inform and, and to clarify the issues even when it seems like it's all chaos. Even if people uh, act 
angrily or they don't understand or they don't have policy uh, expertise and they're very visceral at it and and if you, and uh, but the journalist has to 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 the best that he or she can it, stick to the traditional values inform uh, be clear be accurate accuracy and always gain and try to be be fair and 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 don't put your own ideas and your own biases and let them um, uh, in, in infiltrate your copy. They should not know how you feel about an issue by reading you or listening to you. That's for at least... Now, my, my perception uh, is that the traditional media has risen to Trump's bait. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, its attitudes towards him uh, are palpable and manifest, and that they're failing uh, to uh, do the sort of things that you described. I'd be interested in in your perception of that. I think that, yeah, I th think that we can't uh, be seen as, as 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 part of the enemy of the people. We should be seen as the people who will. Tell it straight and 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 um, and and be fair to all sides and show the nuance. I'm a big nuance guy, let, and a big for let's let's let the facts go. One of the but, other but, issues. But, but, that, but do you believe the traditional media is doing that in its coverage of Trump? Uh, I, I I think no. I, I think we're 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 failing on that. I think also his. His um, very uh, there, there's the media is going so fast. It's hard for all of us to keep up, and so we 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 go for the shiny object and not the essence of what the issue or what the stories are. I I just find myself uh, um, not not turning off, but wish I should. Yeah, I, I should turn off <clears throat> the, the media because I'm not gaining clarity because there's too much going going at it. I think that there are clearly the way that media has developed it's not three two newspapers and three TV stations. You have a myriad of right. of, of outlets and and everybody is a as a journalist. And and they're all and everyone's competing for uh, for clicks and it's it's not necessarily um, you know, giving giving detailed analysis or informed uh, details, and as maybe not as clickworthy as a sensational headline or um, the, the the latest you know juicy revelation to come out without the context. Yeah, that's, that and, that's, that's true. And and we media has always been we're an oppositional force. I mean, the the yeah. the, the, the media is uh, when I, even when I started in in 1971 uh, as a graduate student uh, covering uh, Spiro Agnew, um, who called us na nadering bo nade bobs of uh, <laughs> negative negative <laughs> nadering nadering nade bobs of negativism. negativism. 
which was a Pat Buchanan which line. Was short, short, shortly after which uh, he was <laughs> removed from office for accepting bribes. <laughs> but, but, that's, uh, but that's a difference that I see about all these other politicians and Trump, is that other politicians, you know, they got grumpy with the press, they got irritated, but they didn't do it all full-out uh, blitz, um, calling everything fake news and and mm-hmm. and seeming to kind of undermine the very basis for which journalism exists. And I think journalism uh, can get kind of defensive about that. And I, you know, sometimes I know they clearly are out to get Trump. I think with what they choose to write is is very attacking. But I think sometimes that can be defensive and try to play try to play like, oh, both sides is, is one side saying this, one side saying this. But when there's like a, you know, straight up lie, sometimes they just quote like, oh, Trump said this, or this person said that. And that's the headline. To me, it seems like they're just magnifying that rather than saying Trump said this. And we know that is a lie. Well, it, well, we used to, uh, journalists would never use the word lie. It, 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 we would, um, you know, you couldn't say, uh, Hal Runyon said this, he is, of course, lying. You would, that, that was not part of our vocabulary, uh-huh. lying. You would say something like this. You would say what he said. You would say what another somebody else said. And you would qu- quote the, the latest statistic mm-hmm. to try to um, show what was going on. But right now, America seems to be in, 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 in rival camps. I don't know. And this has, has been... For a while, uh, uh, and we are clustering in smaller and smaller uh, clusters, which is not—it's a—it's a media problem, but it's—it's it's a social and societal and a community one as well. I, I uh, was reading the uh, biography of um, uh, Burton Barr, who was a House Majority Leader here in Arizona, and what his his life experience was from. World War II, where he he brought in where all Americans were part of a single effort that unified a generation. Now, what has happened in your life and my, and, and ours have been more uh, to to break up that unity. That we then we 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 have we don't have big department stores. We have niche right. stores, and so everybody goes on their way. I. I don't. I think we need a, a unifying force. I don't. I thought the recession would be a re- yeah. unifying force, but it hasn't. And that's. It'll just go there right now. I was going to bring this up towards the end, but you personally are, um, Richard, very active in your community, and you've always been. And how I first uh, got to know you is you were my basketball coach. You know, growing up. Uh, at the Boys and Girls Club, and um, that's been a very positive influence in my life, and you've made a lot positive influence and continue in your community. How, I mean, how do you stay active? How, what motivates you to stay active in your community? How can, uh, um, what would your advice be for people who see that uh, disintegration and want to say, like, how, what can I do to, to bring it all back together? Well, I do think that, that again, because we s- separate and, and, and watch this different TV shows, different, uh, we have, um, we just do things more uh, isolated. I think that, that we have to spend time, and I'm not great at this, I try, but, I'm, but to, to, to expand our 
our community, get to know our neighbors. We basically, our neighbors are, we, are the people we wave to as we're driving <laughs> out of the driveway. We're, we really don't know them. Uh, that's why, for example, in my, my little community, I'm pretty happy with Phoenix. Uh, my little neighborhood community has a little library, a uh, book store. We got our little uh, street paved uh, last year and a new median and street signs. Phoenix is happy for me, but that yeah. is probably because we have a neighborhood block watch. We have uh, regularly, uh, we have the police come by and, and talk to, to our, our at least once or twice a year because they want to be the eyes and ears of the community as well. So I think that 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 those sessions help the community, uh-huh. um, and you have to give back. Phoenix has been great to all of us, and so I, you know, I, if I can do a little, I yeah. will. Let's uh, let's transition there and talk about the history of, uh, of Phoenix a little bit and the developments and um, whether we're growing closer together uh, or what direction we're going. I've only been following politics here for a few years, but you guys have both been around for a little bit longer. Um, a very much <laughs> longer period of time. Uh, so let's talk about some of those changes that have happened in Arizona. Um, you know, we've gotten bigger. Phoenix has grown a lot. ASU has grown in size and influence. Downtown has developed. Um, we've got light rail now. It seems like we've been kind of consistently electing conservative senators and governors for a while, but Phoenix remains predominantly liberal. So uh, what do you guys think? What are the most important changes made over the years? What direction do you think we're heading right now? But Well, well, to, to me, uh, um, I like the way Phoenix has, has grown in the last uh, 40 years. I can remember uh, when, when we came to Phoenix, uh, they told us, don't buy a house below... Camelback Road, and so we did, <laughs> and, <laughs> and because the the every every year another block is lost to blight, and every ten years another mile would go starting from downtown, and and when when I came to Phoenix, the downtown was a ghost town. It was mm-hmm. we had uh, I, I compared it to nuclear build down, which was a f- phrase where you'd uh, get rid of two buildings for every one you put you put in new, uh, so it was it was it was dead. Um, now, because of more of the diversity with the uh, LBGTQ community uh, getting in, uh, the historic preservation and the historic preser- historic neighborhoods, uh, the renovation of the economy, younger people coming in, and uh, and school choice, allowing people, they don't have to be tied to the one school district. They can go to your school uh, and not just be tied to another school district that they might right. not want. Uh, that, that, that opens up a lot of vistas for, for residents to, to, to keep investing. Uh, I, I, now my, my neighborhood is really kind of nice. And in the late 80s, uh, we were really nervous about about um, what would happen. Right. We also purchased a home about the same time, uh, south of Camelback, not not in a neighborhood very far away. Um, 
And Richard's right. Uh, the stabilization of the central city is one of the biggest stories um, since uh, we both purchased homes in the late 70s and early 1980s. Um, looking more broadly, the biggest change I see mirrors a change that has occurred at the national level, and I think we were just part of a national tra trend. I don't think it was special to Arizona. And that is that the two political parties became far more ideological uh, and um, partisanship uh, began driving decision-making to a far greater extent. If you go back to the late 70s, 1980s, there was a large amount of crossover voting uh, in Arizona. You had a lot of conservative rural Democrats uh, for reasons that I've forgotten. We called them Pinto Democrats. But they were votes that a Republican thought um, he or she could get. In the central city, in both Phoenix and Tucson, you had uh, Republicans who were willing to vote for a Democrat. And so 15 to 25% crossover voting was not at all unusual, and that could decide the outcome of elections. Um, now, party loyalty uh, by ordinary voters uh, is extremely high. Crossover voting is relatively small. Uh, you look at the city of Phoenix, and you go back to the 70s, 80s, and even 90s, uh, city government was nonpartisan, non-ideological. You would go from a Republican to a Democratic mayor and hardly see any difference. Um, I think this city council is extremely ideological, uh, and uh, Greg Stanton has sort of staked his claim uh, to a culturally liberal agenda. Um, that just wasn't something you would have seen um, 20, 30 years ago. I completely agree with that. I, um, we used to, uh, um, in, even in the council district system, in, in a southwest Phoenix district, they could easily elect a Republican. In fact, Dudlinger was it a Republican? And conversely, in the, in the North Phoenix, uh, uh, Peggy Bilston could be well, elected Ed, as well. Or, Ed, Ed Corrick, a, or Ed a Corrick. fairly liberal Democrat, represented sort of the silk stocking uh, area of Phoenix initially. And, um, and um, uh, now it, it is uh, very, very much more ideological. And I, I, it's one of the, my greatest laments because I am not a great partisan. I, I see, uh, because the, it takes away the, the, the nuance, or, or you always know where everybody's right. going to vote. And There's I, no I persuasion there Persuasion either. either. If and and, and uh, if, you, if you round up your, your boys or girls, uh, that's tantamount to an election. I, um, I think that this, interestingly, uh, back when we were, Talk, uh, starting out, uh, there was always this talk about, ooh, Arizona is now con re Republican, but it's going to go. Uh, 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 the great brown wave is is coming, and I've I've heard that in America since the 1970s, which was called the Hispanic, the decade of the Hispanic. Um, 
that it for numbers of reasons it's not even in this election this mayor upcoming mayor's election which will pit two spanish surnamed individuals kate where uh, kate gallego, gallego is is actually a a an, an anglo um um with an Hispanic surname and Danny Valenzuela. And a third Latino has entered the race, Moses yes, Sanchez. Yes. You have, you will have uh, from two, two of the lowest performing Democratic districts are vying for two of the th spots. Uh, the city of Phoenix, and yet the Hispanic voting population is still under 15 percent uh -huh. it might be 10 percent of the actual turnout so the hispanic wave although there have been great waves uh, great great efforts individually for one candidate in in a council district it is not it has it's, not changed what has changed is it is more partisan and and uh, now, more democratic venezuela's um, election to the city council is often cited as an example of where the Latino vote did increase its yes. turnout and did change the outcome. Do you agree with that assessment? Um, it's interesting because I, I'm going. I I think that that was yes one of the elections. Although Ruben Gallego before him was also another guy who used young Hispanic, often called Dreamers. Uh, they called themselves Team Awesome, and they really did. Uh, increased the uh, voting for West Side, which was, which is a lot of Ed Pastor's supervisor districts, which was uniformly the lowest voting percentage uh, in the United States, one of the lowest performing turnouts in the United States. So, so it is a it, uh, so um, when his when the Latinos do start voting, it might change. Uh, voting patterns in Arizona, but I don't see it yet. In terms of the partisanship, is that that we have more partisanship or ideological um, loyalty here on both sides? Is that true across the board? Is that a national trend, or is there something unique about Arizona or Phoenix? That's, I, that's I, more... I believe it's part of the ideological reorientation of the two parties uh, that Ronald Reagan brought about. Uh, Reagan made the Republican Party a conservative party, uh, and the Democratic Party became a uh, liberal party. Um, when Reagan was elected president, uh, there were um, liberal Republicans from the Northeast. There were conservative Democrats from the South. Uh, the liberal Republicans from the North have either become independents or Democrats, and the conservative Democrats in the South and, and some of the blue-collar workers have become Republicans. So there was, and, and, and we've had this discussion before, I actually think an ideological orientation to parties um, is a good thing because it offers clearer choices to the electorate. The problem is when everything is decided by um, partisanship, uh, when not everything is a partisan issue. Right. Uh, and that's particularly true in municipal government. Uh, there shouldn't be a lot of ideology uh, in um, 
the management of city government. In the city of Phoenix, for most of our life, uh, there wasn't. Uh, I believe there now is. I yeah I I think that I th actually I'm more of a person who th thinks that the ideological uh, uh, strain was has its roots in the 1960s with the civil rights. I I think that uh, that really created Watergate. Uh, the the Republican Party gained back ascendance in 1966, um, right after. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's part of that was the, uh, the war part of it was uh, but most of it was yeah. civil rights and and uh, and, and the, the deep south went first for George Wash Wallace and then and then for uh, the Re Richard Nixon and the, the his southern strategy Watergate delayed that for for almost for a generation and and brought in in 1974 and 76 a number of very sharp, very ambitious young Democrats who got elected and stayed there for quite some time. Um, but otherwise, that Republican sweep, which which Ronald Reagan was the the the, the high point of, um, uh, and was put. More but, ideological. But, but Richard Nixon was not a conservative. No, I mean, he was he not. He was a, no. the architect of wage and price controls. He was the father of the Environmental Protection Agency. He pro, he proposed a um, guaranteed uh, national, income, income, national income. income. So it, it really wasn't. And, and you had, when the Civil Rights Acts were being considered, you had a... Uh, an awful high percentage of Republicans who voted for them, a relatively high percentage of Democrats who voted against them. I, I truly believe that it was the Reagan revolution that created the ideological orientation of the two parties that we have yet today. I think, if but it's but it's still ethnic. I I see things that, that a lot of that we cluster around. Ethics uh, or yeah, yeah. ethnicities, and, and those and those are very polarizing things. I mean, the civil rights Absolutely. movement, MLK. You know, everyone celebrates him now, but he's a very polarizing figure back sure. then. Vietnam, very polarizing figure, and I, I see that happening kind of right now. With you know, Trump was very polarizing, so you see the right kind of being defensive about all the tax and kind of kind of uh, coalescing around this um, need to defend Trump no matter what, uh, and then you see just the. Um, you know, just the anger rising and rising um, from the left, um, and any any concession is kind of seen as uh, an attack on them. Um, but I'm wondering, is is the Arizona Senate race right now a, te a test for that? Is it? Um, it seems like Cinema is a more more of a centrist. Um, does she have a, a possibility to to cut through the uh, ideological divide? Well, she sure has. Uh, um, I think that that when you look at history, which is our only guide, uh, Democrats in Arizona um, have a chance to win when some things happen, when the Republicans are split, ideologically or in a in a contested primary, when when the, there's a wave, when a you know, uh, uh, 19, 1976 was the last time a Democrat was elected uh, 
to the U.S. Senate. That was Dennis DeConcini. What was he? Nice, a good family from Arizona, a good family name, kind of a, identified with law enforcement, part of a wave. Yeah, county attorney. A, he was county attorney in Tucson. Uh, he was, it was part of a wave, the Watergate wave of 74 and 76. And, uh, and he was uh, uh, viewed as a centrist. I think that uh, all of those might come into play. Bob and I kind of agree that if, if this is a wave year, if it's the Reagan, the politician, <laughs> and the guy who in, insults everybody and creates havoc and constitutional crises, then it will be a, a, a wave, and cinema would be able to to uh, overcome that, uh, overcome the the what Bruce Babbitt described as in Arizona, a Republican should win every race if he can chew gum and walk at the same time. <laughs> uh, although even subsequent to um, Babbitt, uh, we had highly successful. Um, politicians at the state level. Janet Napolitano uh, was um, a phenomenon uh, when it came to electoral uh, victories. Um, and I think, though, that she, she kind of fits that mold. Law enforcement, centrist, perceived as a... Uh, and it was uh, right after a lot of a long-time Republican control of the of the of the state and a feeling that enough is enough. But but there's been a change since that period, and that is the rise of independent registration. And uh, it has paradoxically come greater at the expense of the Democrats than the Republicans. Republican registration has remained fairly level. Democratic registration has actually plummeted. And because of the ideological orientation of the parties and the option that's more uh, commonly accepted of registering independent, those people who are still registered, Republican or Democrat, have a deep party loyalty. And in the last several elections, Republicans have been over 40% of the turnout at our elections. If you are 40% of the turnout, uh, and you retain that, you don't need to pick up many independents to get over uh, the finish line. And that's the main reason that there has not been a Democrat elected uh, statewide in Arizona um, since 2008. And 2013 was the first year in Arizona history that there wasn't a single statewide elected Democrat. So there's no question that cinema offers the Democrats their best chance in a very long time. The conditions that Richard mentioned are exist. The Republicans are divided. It may be a way of election. Mm -hmm. She has a reputation as a centrist. She's also extremely well-funded. But that political math is awfully yeah. hard for anyone to overcome. Which brings us back to one of our earlier discussions that we used to have, we used to call them ticket splitters, people who were actually uh, between 7 to 10 percent of the of the voting electorate who would go down and purposely vote for one or the other candidate and 
but now that that uh, you, we don't even have a a, 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 yeah. a a lever that you can press to b- vote one party. Yeah, and and the uh, it hasn't helped Democrats. Yeah, that's not what they were telling us would happen. Just like in every reform, it never account, uh, cre- uh, turns out the way they predict. Right. And a lot of it will probably depend on um, the elections long way away. It seems like so much happens just day to day. Who who the heck knows what's gonna what the country's gonna look like three months from now um, and up to, up to the election. Um, especially with going back to the original point too on um, on your column, Dad. Of let's say things kind of stay stable. You know, are people gonna go with the economic normality or even improvement and ignore all the other stuff where it'll be so much overloaded by then that people will have enough to overcome that disadvantage that you, um, that you spoke about. Well, Richard, thank you very much for Billy was fine. Being thank on you, the podcast thank you so much. Um, and so thank you. Thanks for everybody for listening. This is the political notebook. You can subscribe to us on any podcasting app. Thank you.